What a beautiful prayer that is. You know, you can hear in that prayer how the whole of the Scripture, you've heard it in the prophets, you've heard it in the Psalms just this morning. They're all pointing to the one whose life we're going to begin to study together today. So if you're joining us for the first time today, it's a great timing on your part, whether you plan it that way or not. But today we're going to begin a study of the life of Jesus as we find it in the book of Luke. And we're going to call this study the rhythm of grace. Now, if you were with us last week, you already know why it is that we're doing this study and you already know what the rhythm of grace is. But again, if if you're just here today, let me explain it to you. The reason that we're commencing today a study of the life of Jesus is because the life of Jesus for the believer in Jesus, for the Christian, for the one who's come and recognized, hey, I need a Savior. Oh, and we have one. We just sang that. And His name is Christ, and you've surrendered your sin and your life. That's the way that it works to Him. Okay, then the life of Jesus is for you the goal. It's the definition of success, as we talked about last week. And so success for the believer in Christ is really not what the world packages up and hands to us and says, here, this is what success is. If you want a meaningful life, pursue this. If you want a a successful life, pursue this. If you want to have purpose in life, if you want to satisfy the longings of your hearts, then you need to be this, become this, achieve this, acquire this. You need to do this. All right, here's the problem with that. And some of you know this by experience. It doesn't work. You set a mark, and we've all done it. We've bent our life around that definition of success and furiously pursued it. And then we got to the mark that we thought was going to be meaning, was going to be purpose, was going to be, hey, wow, my life actually matters, was going to be significance and fulfillment and all of these different things. And it wasn't. It isn't. But here's the tricky thing. There's always someone with more. And so we assume, well, they must have it, and then we pursue that. No, and then it isn't, and then they must have it, and then no, then it isn't. And here's the deal. Jesus, who made your heart, says, look, let me save you some time. The goal of life is not those things. And what you're looking to find, you will not find in those things. I made your heart to be satisfied only in me. It's found in me, and the goal is to become more and more and more and more like me, Jesus, and, well, less and less and less like the people we were when he originally found us. And so we're studying the life of Jesus because that for us is the goal, and we're calling it the rhythm of grace because that is the Spirit-empowered method, if you will, that the Spirit of God who lives within us takes and then uses and makes us less and less and less like we were when He found us and more and more and more and more in ever-increasing fashion like the Savior. And so then the question is, all right, but what is that rhythm of grace? It's the gospel. It is the spiritual rhythm or pattern of the gospel that informs absolutely every spiritual discipline, every habit, every practice that we implore you guys week by week by week to take up and to participate in, like, for example, personal worship. Think about personal worship. So you go on the website, you sign up for the email, 12.01 a.m. on Monday, you get an email. And what does the email say? It says, here's the passage of Scripture that Rio Vista Community Church as a collection of individuals out in the world are going to study through throughout the course of this week. And then when we come together as a faith family on Sunday, we're going to work through together, but what's the pattern of working it through during the week? So on Monday, I come to that passage of Scripture, 
And I prayerfully and reflectively and like with a pen in my hand and a pad of paper next to me so I can write down whatever it is that the Spirit of God impresses upon me in that moment. I come and day one, I study through it prayerfully and purposefully and intentionally and I am looking to remember God. What does that mean? To remember God exists? No. To remember who God is. I'm looking through this passage and I'm saying, tell me who you are. Tell me what you're like. Reveal your heart to me. Reveal your mind to me because here's the deal. The goal is for my mind, the way that I think, to become more like his mind. It's for my heart, what I love, what makes me happy, what makes me sad, what makes me angry, what makes me joyful, what I value, don't value, or value differently, to become more like his. God, reveal yourself to me. Day two, I come back. I work through the same passage of Scripture, but now with a different focus. Now I'm coming to God and I'm saying, okay, here's the deal. I need to be honest with you about some things, about me. Now, why do I need to do that? Because when I see God for who He is, I see me for who I am, and I see that there are some problems here. God comes to us in His Word and says, listen, here's the book of the life, of your life that you need to turn in at the end. The book of your life that you need to turn in at the end needs to be, it's good that you're seated, a perfect book. Not a book a little better than your neighbor's. Not a book, you know, pretty much better than most of the rest of the... No, no, no. A flawless book. A perfect book. That's the only kind of life that can be lived in the presence of a perfectly holy God. And what's the problem? Because we've talked about this in the past. The problem is that I can't take out the book of my life, and neither can you, and start flipping through its pages and whip out some magical whiteout or something and start, you know, deleting or covering over all the things that I don't want God to see. Oh, I don't want him to see this. I don't want him to see this. I mean, you get to the college years, you just rip them all out. Just tear them out. Throw them away. Oh, dear Lord, don't look at this. Okay, here's the problem. He was there when it happened. And unlike me, he has no trouble with his memory. Mind is slipping. There's no whiteout, and there's no outdoing it. So I have four years of, man, I wish I could rip that out. And now I've got 40 years of, I'm going to try to do good to outweigh it. No, I'm sorry. Standard is perfect. And even in those 40, yeah, not so much. So what happens is you come into the presence of God on Monday, you see yourself there, and then you come to God on Tuesday and you go, hey, here's my book. I got no hope. There's nothing I can do about this. There's no white out for me. You give it to the only one who can make it clean. And how does he do that? That's Wednesday. You rest in the assurance of his grace, his grace. Yeah, as it comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself supernaturally conceived, taking upon himself flesh and as a man for mankind, living for me and for you. And suffering and dying that he might take the book of your life and make it spotless. But you have to give it to him along with your life. You have to acknowledge, hey, you know what, that, that's actually a problem for me. I, I need that spotless thing that, you know, can you just do that? And then maybe you should just take over because I haven't done such a good job. And I'm empty and I'm longing. And that issues forth in praise and in joy and gratitude and all kinds of stuff. Oh, and it also issues forth in a desire to now follow him to do what he wants, to do what he says to do, which is incidentally Thursday, receive his instruction. And then Friday, what is it? Now I'm walking through this week and I'm saying, okay, Lord, how do I in community with other people who are on the same Jesus journey, if you will, that I'm on 
and by the power of your spirit, go forth and do whatever it is that I think you've led me to do this week, or feel whatever it is that I think you've led me to feel, or be whatever it is that I think you've led me to be, or become whatever it is that I think you've led me to become. That's the being, the doing, the becoming, the achieving, the acquiring, that in the end results in the image of Christ, and that in the end is actually successful. And the final analysis, that's what matters. And then you come in on Sunday, having prepared your heart Saturday night, and what do we do together? Same thing. I mean, whether we say it exactly that way or not, it's the same thing. We've got a call to worship from the Psalms or whatever. We've got a great song that's saying, hey, just a reminder, this is who your God is. This is what your God's like. This is what your God's done. And then Matt gets up every Sunday and says, okay, I think we've got some things we need to be honest about. And he leads us in a prayer of confession, does he not? And we receive the assurance of our salvation that in Jesus we're good, our book is clean, we've turned it in through Him, and that issues forth in song and in praise and in worship of all kinds, even our giving. And then we sit down together, all of us, even me, which is kind of weird, you know, for a lot of churches. He sits on a stool, and we receive His instruction, all of us. And then Matt gets up at the end and says, now go do what he says. And here's what we're going to learn this year. This spiritual rhythm, this rhythm of grace doesn't just encompass our days and it doesn't just encompass our weeks, but it also encompasses our years. We're going to be very purposeful and intentional this year about reaching back into the the ancient traditional church calendar and calling out its wisdom, entering in more purposefully and intentionally into its seasons and into its emphases and even recapturing some of its services that we might then realize that, hey, you know what? This rhythm of grace takes up our whole year, so it takes up our days, it takes up our weeks, it takes up our years, and as we consciously participate alongside of the Holy Spirit in this rhythm of grace, here's what happens. All of a sudden you have a problem, all of a sudden you have a decision, and this rhythm is so ingrained in your heart and in your mind that reflexively you begin to process it like this. I have to remember my God in this. Who who is He? And who isn't He? The Spirit is bringing to mind all of the things that you know about the Lord your God because you're putting those things in your heart day by day, week by week, year by year. Okay, I've got to be honest with you, God, about myself in all of this. Here's what my motives are. Here's what my selfishness says. Here's what my sin wants to do. Here's what my anger thinks I should really, you know, because I might not have another opportunity to stick it to this guy. And here's, so I need to be honest about that. And I need to remember that I'm yours. My book is clean and it's not clean because of me. I did everything I could to pollute it. It's clean because of you and who I am in you. I'm a beloved son or daughter of the king of the universe. Lord, instruct me. Instruct me from your word. Instruct me from your word that I've been systematically storing up in my heart and that your spirit brings to my mind and says, here, here's what to do. You know the answer. And send me out to do it. Or you encounter somebody in need. And here's what your heart says. Good grief, I have enough expenses. (laughs) You know what? I've had places to be and people to see. If I get involved in this, that's a mess for me. I'm already committed to this and 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 this. And all of a sudden, I'm not, wait a minute, processing it. I need to remember the Lord. I need to be honest with Him. I need to remember who I am in Him. That I'm filled, that I'm full in Him. I'm overflowing. All right, Lord, what do I do now? Go do it. You see how it works? 
And as it works, it makes you more and more and more like Jesus and less and less and less and less like me and less like you. So that is the rhythm of grace. That's why we're pursuing it this year, including this calendar year, which incidentally, the Christian calendar year does not begin on January 1st. It begins now, today, with the first Sunday of Advent. And so I want to tell you what Advent is and isn't. It's not Christmas. Now, it's related to Christmas, but it isn't Christmas. Christmas is the day each year that we remember that we have a God who breaks through. He breaks through into real space, into real time, and into the real world in which we live as we celebrate the great breaking through of God in the birth of Jesus Christ, the God-man who is the Son and the Savior and the King of the world. That's Christmas. Advent is a season of time in anticipation of the celebration of Christmas in which we stop, in which we pause, in which we try to find time amidst cell phones and parties and all kinds of -of end-of-year stuff, all the craziness and the madness that goes on at the end of this year to intentionally and purposely reflect upon how it is that right now in our real time and in our real space and in our own real little individual worlds, we long for God to break through for us. God, how do I want you in Christ? How do I need you to break through for me? And so then here's the question I've got for you for the whole Advent season, and we'll work it through from different angles. But the question is, what kind of a breakthrough are you longing for right now? What is it? And here's the follow-up, and it's important. The follow-up is, to whom or to what are you looking for the satisfaction of that longing or of those longings? Because here's what we typically do. We typically look to satisfy it somewhere and in something other than Christ. The one who, again, made our hearts and made them to be satisfied only in Him. So we begin this amazing study this morning in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, where as a matter of introduction, Luke, who is the author of this great book, says this, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, but accomplished among us by whom? By the God who breaks through into real space, into real time, into this real world, into our real lives, in and through the person of Jesus Christ, inasmuch as many, like Matthew, like Mark, like John, for example, have undertaken, Luke says, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us by God through Christ, just as those who from the beginning of all of this that I'm going to relate to you, he says, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered all of this information to us. It seems good to me also, says Luke, having followed all of these things that I will now write about in this incredibly important book very closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. And then I love the title. I've asked Siri, Siri to call me this now. Most excellent... Theophilus. I just plugged my name in, though. I didn't go with Theophilus. All right, so who is that? We have no idea. We don't know who it is. And it honestly doesn't matter. What matters is we know why Luke wrote to this most excellent Theophilus. And for that matter, why Luke wrote to anyone who would take up this book and read it. To anyone who would enter into the life of Jesus and allow, through this story, the life of Jesus to enter into him or to enter into her. 
He gives us the purpose right out of the gate. He says, listen, here's why I've written this. It's so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, but about who? About the God who breaks through, guys, in real time, real space, real lives, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And who? In Jesus, either in this life or in the next, absolutely and unequivocally will satisfy all of our longings. And so then what does Luke immediately now do? He takes us into the lives of two people, an elderly couple, precious, precious people, and then also into the life of the nation of Israel, all of which in this equation are desperately longing for a breakthrough from God. And we know that because in verse 5, Luke tells us that the story that he's about to give us about all of those people and about that nation takes place, he says, in the days of Herod, the Roman-appointed king of Judea. Here's what he's not doing. He's not saying, hey, I want you guys to know when the story occurred. It occurred in the days of Herod, king of Judea. What he's saying is, I want you to know what's going on when the story occurred. Oh, and it occurred in the days of Herod king of Judea, and we know from history and from the Word of God both that those were desperate days. They were very desperate days. They were days of slavery for the people of Israel. They were days of oppression for the people of Israel. They were days of great shame and indignity and death for the people of Israel. And so then if you're going to enter into this story and if you're going to let the story enter into you, what do you need to do at this point? You need to go, hey, well, wait a minute. So what are the longings that those kinds of things must have created for them? And and how does that compare with me? So they're an enslaved people. What do they long for? I mean, baseline, they long for freedom. You've got to pause and say, all right, what do I want to be free from? What am I longing to be free from? I got to write that down. That's something to interact with. They were an oppressed people. What are they longing for? Justice. How does that story enter into my story? It's when it triggers my longing for justice. It's when it causes me to sit down and go, yeah, and here's how I want some justice. They were people who were shamed, subjected to all manner of indignity, creating longings of personal worth and value and significance and to be treated with some measure of dignity. They were a beaten down people, but they're not the only beaten down people. Maybe you're a beaten down person. You see how it works? And they longed for life because these people lived in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And Herod was a man who was so tyrannous, and you know this from the gospel of Matthew, that when he heard from the Magi that one born king of the Jews, and again, remember, he was the Roman appointed king of the Jews, had been born in the city of Bethlehem, When he couldn't find that one, when he wasn't led there to that one child, what does he do? He murders every child in the city of Bethlehem, every male child two years of age and under. Little snippet of what you're dealing with in this man's life. He was so unpopular, guys, that when it came to the end of his life, and the end of his life was drawing near and he knew it, he summoned from the the city of Jerusalem, from the people of Israel, the most popular citizens... The most beloved people in the nation, he summoned them to come to the city of Jericho where he was dying, and he gave a command that upon his death they all be murdered. Because he wanted to guarantee that instead of celebration at the news of his death, there would in fact be weeping. Now, they didn't carry out that order, but think about that. 
Imagine living under the tyranny of a man like that. They longed for life. What kind of life are you longing for? And where are you trying to find it? You chasing the different levels? You know what? Well, I didn't find it here, but I think maybe if I find it here, no. Okay, but maybe, where are you finding it? Are you finding it in the one who is himself, the way, the truth, and the life? These people turned to the Lord, and we see that beginning in verse 5. It says again, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And so she too was from a priestly line, and her name was Elizabeth, and that's kind of the way that it worked in those days. So you were born into the priestly family or into the priestly tribe. And they were both righteous, we now read, before God. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which does not mean that they were absolutely perfect. The, hey, Lord, you know what? I'm one of those unbelievers. Well, nobody's done this, but here's the book of my life, and it's perfect. No, that's not what it means. But here's the book of my life. It's covered in the blood of Christ. And because of his operation and spirit in my life, you know what? It does kind of look a lot like Jesus, and here's why. <laughs> because it's a lot like the most obedient life ever lived. The Lord had clearly done a work in their life, but He had also clearly denied them something very significant that created within them an unbelievably powerful longing, one that is difficult for us in this day and age to imagine the passion of. Because it says now that they had no child, and here's why. It names the reason, because Elizabeth was barren, that is to say that her womb was dead. That's actually important. And then just to make matters worse at this point in their lives, Luke says, they were also both advanced in years, which is kind of a modest way of saying she was beyond menopause and so forth. So physically speaking, procreatively, they're dead. They're incapable of having a child, which was not only devastating to them personally, but it was devastating to them socially. In that culture, barrenness was associated with great shame and subjected particularly the woman cruelly to great indignities. And so they were enslaved to a condition that they could not free themselves from. They were oppressed by the shame and indignity of that condition of death. And what Luke is doing here at the beginning of this narrative is he's drawing a direct parallel lines, if you will, between the condition of this barren, precious, elderly couple and the condition and the longings of the hearts of the people of Israel too. For they too were enslaved, oppressed, in shame and indignity, and experiencing a form of death. And what I love both about this elderly couple and about the people of Israel in this is that as we see them in this story, they still have hope. They're doing the theme of Advent and that they're crying out to the Lord God who alone can deliver them. And they have hope even though, humanly speaking, I mean, they don't have hope, do they? How do you take somebody who's past menopause and was barren all of her life prior to that and then her husband who is equally barren at this stage in life and then from them, you know, let's have a baby. I mean, you got a doctor for that? You can't fix that. Oh, and how do you free the nation of Israel from the Roman Empire, which controls the world? Like, who's the list of candidates that you could go to as possible deliverers? But they believe in the God who breaks through and who can do anything. So again, verse 8, 
It says, while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division of priests was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. It's like a casting of dice to enter into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And here's how all that worked. At this time, the, the priesthood was so large that it was divided into 24 different divisions, and each division would be summoned on a rotating basis to come to the temple two separate times per year, a week each. And the priests who would come in their division would have all kinds of different things to do. One of these things to do was to burn or to offer the incense offering, which was offered in the morning before the sacrifice and in the evening after the afternoon sacrifice. And it was the most prestigious of all of the things, all the tasks you could be chosen by lot to then do because you did this in the holy place of the temple before the veil which separated the world, really, from the most holy place, the place where God was thought to reside. And so then, in terms of proximity, in that moment, you're the closest person, geographically speaking, to the Lord. It was a great honor, and they only allowed you to throw the dice if you had never done it before, which means that Zechariah, who's an old man, he's been a priest for a long time, he's been to Jerusalem many, 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 many years, has never done this. And so the Lord who controls the womb and the lot, as the Scripture says elsewhere, has made him wait until now. And guess what he prays for? So as we're told that while Zechariah was inside of the temple praying to the God who really and truly does break through for deliverance from the slavery and oppression and shame and indignity and death of barrenness, the whole multitude of Israel also, these people, were praying outside of the temple at the hour of incense. At the exact same time is the idea for deliverance from the slavery and oppression and shame and indignity and death of Herod and of Rome. And then we read, and in the midst of Zechariah's praying, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, which is the position of honor and of power in the Bible. And Zechariah was quite understandably troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth, whose womb is dead, will bear you a living son, and you shall call his name John, which means that God is gracious, and indeed God is gracious. But what else is God? As you work through the story, what else is He? God is able, and what is He able to do? to take something that is dead and bring it to life, to take something that has died and out of it bring something that is living. See, that's how you enter into the story, but it's how the story enters into you. That's how you sit down and go, hey, man, what's died in my life? I have no hope of resurrecting because I just, I don't have resurrection power. I don't know about you guys, but Where do I need God to break through for me? The God who can bring life out of death, even. For He does it again and again. And so the angel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth, whose womb is dead, will bear you a living son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness. My goodness, yes. And many will rejoice at his birth, and here's why, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And you're like, well, what's the deal with that? Well, Zechariah would have understood that. For those two weeks a year when he showed up to serve in the temple and cast the lots and was denied again and again for the incense, until now, 
He knew that he and all of the other priests would abstain from alcohol of any kind for those two weeks of the year. They were set apart. It was a sign of them having been set apart for this holy task. God is saying, your son, born of a priestly man and woman, born a priest and a great prophet, will be set apart for the whole of his life. For holy task after holy task after holy task in pursuit of his most holy task, which is to prepare God's people for the coming of Jesus. And so that's what it means when he says, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled now, we read, with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. We'll see evidence of that in a future story. And he will turn, here we go, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And what that means is that this boy, John, is not just the answer to the prayer that Zechariah is offering, standing there while he's offering the incense offering inside of the temple, but he's also the answer to the prayer that all the people gathered outside are praying as well. One answer both prayers. And here's part of what we need to acknowledge and I think also then embrace. I mean, when you think about that for a minute, okay, well, that means that Zechariah gets exactly what he asked for. He prays for a son, he gets a son. Not so for the people of Israel. They come and they pray for a Messiah who will deliver them from Herod and Rome. And God in His greater wisdom and in His better judgment sees a far more villainous enemy, an eternal one. And he says, no, 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 I'm going to send you a Messiah that is going to save you from sin and death. And so sometimes God breaks through and he satisfies our longings exactly in the way that we had well expressed them to him. And sometimes in his greater wisdom and in his better judgment, he comes along and says, listen, nice request. I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to do something better than that. I'm going to give you something different from that, which may be tough to swallow. But you're going to have to trust me in this. And that's the challenge for us in those moments. You didn't do it exactly the way I wanted to, Lord. No, I didn't. That's right. And you know what? That's actually good. It's to trust his better judgment, and it's to remember as well that this world isn't all that there is. Like at the end of life, that's not the end of life. It's the precursor to something far more significant and absolutely eternal. And in comparison with, this is a real short sprint. And it's to remember that in Christ we receive as well an an eternal inheritance in a world in which the dwelling place of God himself will literally be among us and in which, and I quote, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the things of this world that create such great longings in us will also be no more. And that too is an Advent message. Advent doesn't just look forward to the celebration of that first coming of Jesus in his birth and Christmas. It looks forward to the day with great anticipation and longing when he will come back, okay, and take care of every literal Herod and Rome that we wrestle with. And that gives us hope in life, and it gives us hope in death too. So last Sunday, we closed out the series on Samuel, and we talked about the death of David. And then after talking about life and death and the meaning of it all and so forth, um, I got in a car and I drove with two of my kids over to Newport Ritchie, Florida, 
uh, which is where my grandmother lives, and I'm pretty sure is where everyone's grandmother lives. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've been there, but if you're going to go to dinner, get there at three. Um, they all live there. But she is 95, and she's blind, and she is dying. And um, she's had a heart attack recently, and you know, basically the doctor said, look, it could be two days, it could be two weeks, I don't know. It was so funny. We met with her on Monday, and um, she had a friend, a friend from her assisted living facility coming to see her that afternoon. Mind you, she's outlived two husbands and like two boyfriends so far. And she says, she says to us, you know, you need to put my makeup and lipstick on because so-and-so is coming to see me today. So I told my mom, I think she's got at least a little further to go, but, but she's at the end. It's, it's, this is it. Um, and so we met with grandma and prayed with her and all of that. And uh, I think the thing that I'm going to remember the most, and I kind of need to be careful how I say this, is her singing. And this is the part you need to understand. Um, she is a terrible singer. I mean, she's the worst. And, and she knows it. That's the deal. Like, she, she would come and visit us at Christmas and holidays when I was a kid. And we love her. She's so much fun. But she's really bad. So we would go to church, and nobody wanted to stand with her. It's bad, guys. I mean, some people sing and you hear their voice and you go, oh, you're, you're good. Some people sing and you hear their voice and you think, yeah, don't quit your day job, you know. And some people sing and you think, good grief, what's that noise? <laughs> and that's her. And she, uh, her attitude about it has always been really great. Um, she doesn't really care what anybody thinks. She just sings. She just figures, you know what? The Lord made my voice, He's given me a song, and I'm singing for Him, and I commend that to you. Just stand somewhere away from me. Um, So Grandma sang. She sang a benediction over us before we left, how God will take care of us. And she sang this. She sang, when we all get to heaven... What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the what? The victory. That woman has no fear. That woman has no regret. That woman has no cares. She's turned in her book. And she knows that all of her longings have either been met or will, are about to be met in Christ. So look, sometimes you get what you ask for. And sometimes you get better, though it doesn't seem that way. But that's when you have to trust the Lord. And then remember that no matter how it goes for us or ends for us in this life, it ends well in Him. So describing John, the angel concludes, he says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he, John, will go before him, meaning Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to have a ministry that runs just in front of the ministry of Christ, and the ministry is to get everybody ready for Christ. It's to identify Jesus. It's to point to Jesus. It's to spiritually prepare the people to receive Jesus. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just 
to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for the coming of their Messiah, one through whom God either has or will answer all of their and all of our longings. So Christmas is different from Advent. It's a day on which we remember and celebrate that our God is a God who breaks through. Real time, real space, real world, real lives. And He did that in Christ, and we celebrate His birth, that great breaking through on that day. But Advent is different. It's a season of time in anticipation of Christmas in which we silence the chaos, which this time of year might mean you've got to like go up on your roof or something. I don't know how you do that. But do it. And you get honest and focus upon the kinds of longings, the kinds of breakthroughs that you are really looking for. So here's what I'd like you to do. The question is, what kind of breakthrough are you longing for? I'd love it if you sat down this afternoon, silenced the phone, threw it away, stuck it in the pool. I don't care. Whatever it takes. Told the kids all to go to their room. It'll be good for them in the end. You'll be a better person. Seriously. And write down, what are my longings? What kind of a breakthrough am I really longing for? What am I actually looking for, longing for in life? Okay, that's part A. And then I want you to go through the list. And be honest and say, all right, what am I looking to to satisfy this? So I have a longing to what? Have eternal life. All right, what am I looking to? Am I trying to outweigh the four years of college with the 40 years of relative good? Because if it's not perfect, you, gotta, you don't want to turn that book in. You want to turn it into Jesus and let him take care of you. My longing for meaning and purpose and significance and value and all of those kinds of things, and I'm trying to manufacture that in, my, in myself through the opinions of other people that I'm trying to win by working myself to death and trying to get to here, and then I realize, oh man, but there's a whole other level of people that I need to impress. I don't care about these opinions as much as I care about these. So now I have to get to here, and then you find out the same thing, and now I have to... Or are you searching for that in Christ? You can own and rest in that and realize, no, I'm a beloved child of the King because of all the things He's done for me. Make your list and then just walk it through. Who am I looking to to satisfy this? Who am I looking to to satisfy this? Who am I looking to to satisfy this? And recognize that there is an answer. There is a one who made you to be satisfied in Him. And let your longing drive you in humility to Him. So bring your longings to Jesus this Advent season and then prepare your heart to embrace His answer, His breakthrough for you, whatever it may be, and do it as one who knows that in the end, in Christ, it's all good. You can get to the end and sing. Really. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You that by Your kindness and through Your goodness, as an expression of Your mercy and of Your grace and of Your incredible love, You have, though we do not deserve it, sent us a Savior in Jesus, one in whom all of the longings that we are frantically trying to satisfy everywhere else and in everything else are full and satisfied. One who takes the book of our life, Lord, and cleans it entirely from beginning to end. 
but the only cleansing remedy in all the universe that works. His precious blood laid down and offered in our place as a sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to not only turn in the books of our lives to him, but turn in the whole of our lives to him. That you would help us to realize that it's by this rhythm of grace that we become like him, and it's by becoming like him that we find everything that we're looking for, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, just to name a few of the fruit of your Spirit, which He works into our lives as we daily, as we weekly, and as we annually seek after you. Seek the Lord while He may be found, you say, O Lord, and you may be found today. So help us to do that, we ask, for your glory and for the good of this, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen.